0: Amen. Well, good morning. It is great to see you guys. It's great to have you joining us online as well this morning Uh, when David, my fellow fast talker, so you talk as fast as you want, buddy, was up here earlier in the service. He talked about Alpha. And uh, and it reminded me of some of the quotes that I've been reading on Instagram from Charles Spurgeon, and I sort of left this as an audible uh, in the message. I'm like, ah, I don't know, do I want to share these things or not? But I think they fit with where we're going today, and, and I think it'll be helpful to you, and I want you to hear these things. Charles Spurgeon is one of my favorite people. Like, he died at 1892, so it's not like we got to hang out a lot. Um, but I've read about him. I read a book on him last year, and I got to the end of the book, and I, obviously I knew that he was going to die, by the way, at age 56, by the way, of gout. Wow. And I'm getting sad as the book is like the less pages we get, the more like I'm starting to grieve the loss of this guy who's become my friend. But he has the gift of saying things very penetratingly, okay? He is clear. Like you don't get to the end of a Spurgeon anything and go, I wonder what he was trying to communicate here. No, 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 you know. And here's what I want to do. I want to read these to you because they're about evangelism. They're about taking the life of Jesus that lives in you and sharing it with other people. Let this stuff wash over you. And not in a way that then makes you feel crummy. But in a way that makes you turn to the Lord and go, hey, you know what? That might not be me, but I want that to be me. Or at the very least, I want to want that to be me. So with Alf in mind, he says, winners of souls are first weepers for souls. Okay, I screenshotted that. I saved it. I'm like, I've got to look at that again and again and again. Like, I'm sitting there going, when was the last time I wept for a soul? Look, it has happened and it does happen, but it needs to happen more. You'll love this. He says, have you no wish for others to be saved? Now, hang on. What is he saying there? Because I think it's important. He's saying, listen, if there is no desire, zero inclination in you to see other people know the joy of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, the relief of Jesus, the life of Jesus that you presumably at least have experienced yourself. He's like, listen, if that's not in you, then you're not saved yourself. And then he says, be sure of that just in case you were wondering what he was meaning by that. Boom. That's true, isn't it? How can Christ be contained in any one of us? He says, I fear that some men would rather be damned than be laughed at. Think about that. He's like, you know, one of the things that keeps people away from Christianity is just, oh, no, now people are going to, you know, laugh at me because I'm a Christian. I think it goes the other way, too. I think one of the reasons why we don't share our faith or we don't invite people to Alpha, I think one of the reasons we don't do that is because we're kind of afraid. Like, what are people going to think of us? What what is that going to cost us? What might happen if I do this? Are they going to laugh at me? He's like, man, it's heaven and hell. we got to get past that stuff. He says, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. I love this guy. I need to be more like this guy. He says, if God has given you an anxiety for the souls of others, then with faith, get to work in all your feebleness. It's brilliant. I think that too is what plagues us. You know, we're like, ah, I can't talk to this person about Jesus because I'm not a Bible scholar. I don't know all the answers to all the questions. You know what? I don't know all the answers to all the questions. And it misses the point, and the point is that God is the one who does the work. He's just going to use you, and that's a privilege. He's like, just get to work in all your feebleness. Get to work in faith in him and in his power and in what he can do. He's like, get to work. All right, last one. He says, a church is a soul-saving company, or it is nothing. A church is a soul-saving company, or it is nothing. I don't know about you guys, but like, I don't want to be involved in nothing. And I don't think you do either. So as we enter into our study today, here's what I want you to be asking yourself as we move through it. Okay. Like what is standing between me and you know what, I've got the life of Jesus in me and I need to share it with you and with you. And then I think maybe also with you and probably these guys over here need to know about that. And then what about those people over there? Maybe I can somehow be a part of reaching those people over there. And what can I do to export the life of Jesus out of here and out here, what what prevents me? What stands between me and that? So, as David said, we're considering, or we're continuing to look at the greatness of Jesus, and we're doing it today. By comparing the life of Jesus to the life of Jonah. And we're going to see similarities, but we're going to see dissimilarities. And it's in the dissimilarities, actually, that we see how Jesus is infinitely greater. But here's the deal. Jesus, with regard to Jonah, said, hey, guys, if you want to see my greatness, and you were looking for it in some of these characters in the Old Testament, let me give you a name. I'll identify somebody that you really ought to go look at. Compare my life, he says to Jonah. So we're going to do that. But we're also going to compare our lives to Jonah. Because there are similarities there too. So the story of Jonah begins in Jonah 1, beginning in verse 1. And he says, now the Lord, or the word of the Lord, came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, and here we go, arise, go to Nineveh. That great city, and great is one of the key words in the story. We'll see it again and again and again. Starts with a great city. He says, Jonah, I've got a mission for you. So here's my mission. Here we go. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against the city. Why? For their evil has come up before me. Like, their evil is so huge. It's just been mounting and mounting and mounting and mounting. It's come all the way to heaven, and I cannot ignore it because I am a just God. Go and call out against that city. And it was a brutal city. There's no question about that. He's saying, look, Jonah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, and I want you to tell the city of Nineveh that their evil has become so great that it has reached the heavens that that I am done with it and then here's what's coming. If they don't repent, if they don't turn to me, if they don't call out to me for grace and for mercy, if they don't come and say, oh Lord, we humble ourselves before you and ask you to forgive me, then destruction is coming. And I just want to pause because we're looking for similarities not just between, between Jonah and Jesus but between Jonah and us and there's one of them right there. As uncomfortable as it sounds, That's kind of sort of our mission, isn't it? Why? Because what is the Christian gospel? It is, first of all, that there is a God. That that God is our creator, our maker, and therefore, by our very being, we owe him our allegiance. We're accountable. may not want to be, but we are. And that that God, in grace and in mercy, gave us the privilege of being made to live our tiny little lives for the greatest good, the greatest beauty, the greatest love, the greatest mercy, the greatest wisdom, the greatest being, the greatest object in the entirety of the universe. He's like, listen, you can live for yourself, you can live for this person, you can live for this stuff over here, you can live for all of these lesser things. Everything on earth will perish. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow, you can spend your lives living for those things or... You can live for me, the singularly greatest person, being, object in the whole of the universe. Like, that's a wonderful thing. There's dignity and nobility in that. What a privilege. So there's a God. He's made us. We're accountable to him. He's made us to live for him. And universally, we've all failed to do that. We've taken our little lives that are supposed to be lived for him, that he asks for, that he deserves, that he warrants, and that he made us to to give to him, and we've stolen them away and we live for ourselves. And as a result, if you think about it, what that does is it effectively creates a debt because we're taking from God what's his, our lives, It creates a debt with God for us that we, by definition, cannot pay. Why? Because let's say, for example, that yesterday I lived 23 out of 24 hours for the Lord. That's a lie. But let's say that I did. I owe him an hour. Okay, here's what I can't do. I can't go back in time and get the hour right. You know what, Lord? I blew it between 3 and 4 p.m. I don't know what happened. So I'm going to relive between 3 and 4 p.m. And then we're square again. And I can't live 25 hours today, and I already owe them the 24 I've got. So I'm done. And here's the thing about debt it always gets paid. You're like, no, it doesn't, because that person who I lent you know a thousand dollars to in 1983, and so with interest, it's worth like nine grand now, and, and they still haven't paid me, and I haven't talked to them ever since then, and blah 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 blah. You know what? You paid it. Isn't that true? I give you $100, you come back, you're like, oh, Tom, I'm kind of hurting right now. And I say, hey, you know what, just keep it. Don't worry about it, it's fine. It's not a big deal. You know, I paid it. Somebody pays the debt, always. And the idea is that at the end of our lives, the debt's called. But the good news of the gospel, and the gospel means literally good news. That's what the word means, is that God, even though we've stolen away our lives from him, foolishly, like it doesn't even rationally make sense to do that. Even though we've done that, God so loved that he did what? In the person of Jesus, he entered into this world once and for all to pay our debt to him for us. And all we need to do is just come to him with our debt and claim his satisfaction of it and give to him the life that, well, that he asks for. And learn to live imperfectly. But there's grace for that. That's, that's debt payment stuff. But learn to live the kind of life that we were created and made to live. So the mission really is not all that different. You know, I mean, if you're looking for similarities between Jonah and me and Jonah and you, at least if you're a believer in Jesus... The message is pretty similar. And also, as the story now continues, we'll see okay, Jonah had a Nineveh he didn't want to go to. And yeah, so do we. Okay, so Jonah rose instead of going to Nineveh. And it says that he went to flee to Tarshish. And notice who he's fleeing from. He is fleeing from the presence of the Lord, which he'll admit later makes no sense. And we read that he went down. That's the other word that repeats. That's one of the keys to understanding the story. He went down to Joppa, this port city by modern-day Tel Aviv, and he found a ship going down to Tarshish, which is not only a very difficult word to say, but it was thought in that day to be the farthest place away from Nineveh that he could buy a boat ticket to go to. Get the idea? And so Jonah paid the fare and he went down into the ship is the point to go with them, the crew on the ship to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord, and then... If you know the story, once he gets on the boat, he goes down under the deck of the boat, he goes up into the stern of the boat, and then he goes to sleep. So the idea here is that as soon as he turns his back on the Lord and God's mission for him, which is go to Nineveh, no matter what else he's able to hang on to, the whole trajectory of his life is going down. Down to Joppa. Down into the ship. Down under the deck. And it just keeps going. So they set out to sea. And if you know the story, you know, the Lord sends a great wind. So there's the great word. And that causes a great storm, which, by the way, <laughs> brings a great panic, it, it, like for the sailors. So, like, when the professionals get up tight, that's when to get nervous. And they are so convinced that they're going to die that they're taking cargo that they're commercially liable for. Like if they live through it, they'll have to repay whoever was the owner of this and was shipping it from point A to point B back. But they don't care about that because they're not sure they're going to live through it. So they're just throwing this stuff over the side of the boat left and right. And somewhere in the midst of this, the captain goes down under the deck. He sees Jonah and he's asleep. And he's incredulous. Like his head is like blown. He's like, what are you doing? He wakes him up. He's like... What are you doing? How can you sleep? We're perishing here. Can't you see this? Get up and pray to whatever God it is that you worship. And maybe, I don't know, who knows, maybe that God can save us. But what's the problem with that request of Jonah? The problem is that God is not looking from Jonah for a prayer for deliverance from a storm. He's looking for a prayer of repentance that results in new obedience. And that's what it does. It says, oh, Lord, I'm going this way. This is away from you. That's a problem. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to acknowledge that. I'm going to confess that. And by the power of your spirit, I'm going to turn from the direction that I've been going. And I'm going to walk toward you. No longer down but up. And Jonah is none too interested in that. Not yet. So we don't know if he prayed for the storm to stop or what. We just know the storm didn't stop and the boys in the boat continue to get nervous like they've, they've dumped all the cargo. And at this point, they're sitting around going, well, I guess we're going to die, you know. And so they're thinking about this and processing it and they're like, I wonder, like we haven't seen anything like this before. I wonder if someone on one of the ships out on the sea here with us, all of which are suffering the same fate in this moment, has offended God or the gods in all likelihood in their case... And I wonder if that person happens to be on our boat. And so what they start doing is something that the ancients used to do to try to divine the mind of God or the gods. They start casting lots. It's like sort of analogous maybe to throwing dice, but to try to figure out what the will of God is or what the message of God is or what God is doing in this particular moment. And the lot lands squarely on Jonah, you know, the guy who bought the ticket to travel with them. And they're so happy now that he's on their ship. And and so they look at Jonah and they're like... What the heck? And he's like, well, um, okay, so here's the deal, guys. My God is the God of the land, <laughs> you ready, and the sea. He's fleeing from the presence of that God. Where, where is exactly is he going to go? It doesn't make any sense. And these guys are pretty well convinced that God is at very least the God of the sea because the sea is about to take them down. And I was supposed to go to Nineveh, and I didn't want to, and so I came and I bought a ticket. And Really nice to meet you guys, and I'm sure you're happy to have me here. And here we are all in this together because, well, of me. And so I'm thinking, they're thinking, what maybe if you don't know this story, you're thinking, which is, why didn't you just go to Nineveh? I mean, what's your deal, man? You're going to flee from the God of the land and of the sea, and you're going to get in a boat to do it. Like, I, at least I would have stayed on land. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like I'm not going to sink into the land. Why didn't you just go? And what is the answer to that? Because Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire and the Assyrians were a brutal, cruel, evil, awful people. They would come in, they would take your land, they would cut your hands and feet off and leave you alive. Gouge your eyes out. They'd come in and conquer a city, cut the heads off of all of its people and stack them up in pyramids so that everybody in the world could see if you mess with us, this is what happens. Or they'd take a stake and they'd stick it in the ground and they'd just stack head upon head upon head upon head until they got 15 feet of heads. All these poles all over the place. And the Assyrian Empire in Jonah's day was the number one threat to the nation of Israel. Israel. So here's Jonah's reasoning. God comes to Jonah and says, look, their wickedness has risen up before me and and we, we need to deal with this. I'm going to destroy them justly for this unless they repent. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the city and I want you to offer them repentance. And Jonah's like, I don't want to offer them repentance. A, I really don't like those people. B, I think it would be better for my country if I did not. So his allegiance to his country excelled his allegiance to God and to his mission. And look, that's not always the case, okay? But I think when it is, Jonah would go, um, you can learn from your experience or you can learn from mine. Stay with the Lord. Complete his mission. Follow him. So the sailors look at Jonah, and they're like, all right, um, what do we do? Because it's pretty obvious that your God is upset, and we're all going down. So is there a sacrifice we can make? You know, like, well, what can we do to appease the anger of this God? And Jonah said, well, there's really only one thing we can do. Take me and sacrifice my life, and then your lives will be saved. It's a powerful statement. Sounds a little like Jesus, does it not? It's interesting. You know, Jonah, I think, gets kind of a bad rap. he's, He's called a racist. It's thought that because he's a Jew, then he doesn't want to go to the Gentiles and the Assyrians are the Gentiles. That's not a problem for him at all. He goes down to Joppa. He gets on a boat full of Gentiles. He buys a ticket to go to a Gentile city, Tarshish. He gives his life to save the Gentiles. His issues are otherwise. They take Jonah, they throw him in the water. The storm stops. The sailors worship the true and the living God. And look, here's the deal. If you weren't in Sunday school as a kid, you have no idea. I mean, you're thinking, well, I guess that's the end of the story, and now let us pray, you know, like, because that's the end of Jonah, obviously. But if you went to Sunday school as a kid, then you know about the great fish, because we have a great city, a great wind, a great storm, and... We have a great fish. In verse 17, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. That was easily the coolest part of the story when you were a kid. But maybe you're not anymore. Now it's the most suspicious part. Why does that seem crazy? I mean, I kind of get it on the one hand. I'm all, why does that seem crazy? But we live in a supernaturally created world, a supernaturally sustained world, We serve a supernatural God. The entirety of our faith is based on the supernatural. And Jesus himself, God-made man, standing on planet earth, talking to the Pharisees in this instance. says, guys, if you want to understand my life, compare it to Jonah. Okay. And listen to the way that he says this. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's talking about his death and burial and ultimately his resurrection. And he's not speaking figuratively there. Anyway, the great fish swallows Jonah. He's buried in the belly of the fish and he passes through the deeps. Water in the Bible is an emblem of judgment and death. He's passing through death. God is taking him through death. It's a beautiful thought. And on the third day, he is spit up on the beach. I think there were people there to see this. I do. I think that's what helps me understand why the fish at all is involved, to be honest. Because what that does is it enables Jonah to then go into the Assyrian capital city of Nineveh as what's called an Apkalu. What in the world is that? It's a demigod who is thought to be sent from the gods with a divine message from God. And, you know, Kalu looks like that. Can you see that? That's one of their etchings. So you can see it's the head of a man, the feet of a man, right? The arms of a man, and he's encased in a fish. I think he spit up onto the beach, and they're like, Whoa, you know, we've heard about these, and here is one. It's like God is saying, through the language of the mythology of the Assyrians, here comes a message authentically from me. He goes into the city. He preaches one sermon. It's eight words long. Wouldn't you love that? Eight words. Here it is. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Whole message. There's no altar call. There's no prayer. Nothing. Nothing. Everyone in the city repents. I mean, there's like 120,000 people in the city. That might be the single greatest mass conversion story ever. And what you're expecting is that, okay, Jonah's going to be pretty excited about this. Like, I mean, I don't know if you support missionaries. I support missionaries. Incidentally, you're a missionary. Please don't miss that. But you get missionary support letters. You know, I get them individually. I get them as a pastor of the church and so forth. And, you know, you read it. Can you imagine the missionary support letter that Jonah was enabled in this moment to write? I mean, it's like, well, I went to Nineveh yesterday and I preached an eight word sermon, and 120,000 people came to faith in Jesus. Think I'm worthy of your support? He's not happy. not even a little bit. It says in chapter 4, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew. And now he's going to describe God. Please hear this. Because it's an accurate and beautiful description. He says, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. My goodness, you gave the Assyrians the opportunity to repent and be saved. But I wish you hadn't. That's what he's saying. He says, therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to live than to die, knowing that these people are going to one day come down into my country and wreck us, which, by the way, they did. It's not like he was off on his estimation. You did not need to be a prophet to see that that's what would, in not too many decades later, happen. sympathize a little with Jonah, and yet God doesn't berate him. He just he comes and he starts to work with the heart of this man. He works in questions, I find. He comes and he says, do you do well to be angry? You know what Jonah does? He just ignores the question. He doesn't even respond. This is God speaking. He's like, yeah, whatever, we're done. I'm not going to talk to you says, Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there, and then he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. No doubt, he's sitting there praying, dear God, you know, just destroy the city. Come on. And so the Lord, who's trying to show Jonah why he does not do well to be angry, gives him an object lesson says that he appointed a plant, and he made it to come up over Jonah. Who who made the plant? God did. Who appointed the plant? God did. Who made it to come up over Jonah? God did. What did Jonah do? He just sat there and enjoyed its benefits, and he was pretty excited about it. God appointed a plant. He made it to come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad now because of the plant. God's like, oh, you like the plant. You value the plant, all right. It says, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Here today, gone tomorrow. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked again that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he says, yes, I do well to be angry for the plant. Angry enough to die. Seems so immature, doesn't it? I do the same thing. It's amazing. And over plants. I mean, really. In the end, just kind of the point. The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor. You didn't create it. You didn't make it come up. You didn't provide for you any of the things that it provided for you. I did. He's like, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who spiritually speaking do not know their right hand from their left and who will live forever somewhere and also much cattle. He's saying, look, Jonah, here's the deal. There's something between you and my mission for you. And you're valuing something that's temporary more than eternal. And fundamentally, that's the problem. He's like, all these things that are standing between me and you, my mission for you and you going on that mission, whatever it is, your your nation, your money, your reputation, I don't want to look stupid, I don't want to be laughed at, I don't want to be, you know, whatever. He's like, you know what all that is? It's just plants. You didn't make them. You don't sustain them. I, the Lord, bring them up. I take them down as it serves my purposes to do. You're worried about plants. I'm worried about eternity. And the point is, Jonah, you ought to be worried about eternity with me. And what's funny is we don't even know what Jonah's reaction is. And the reason for that is because actually that's the end of the story. Like it just, the book ends, boom, we're done. Which says that his reaction is not the point of the story. Mine is. Yours is. I think it's easy to see Jesus in the story. I really do. Jesus is the Lord of glory. He's the son of God, right? And he, in perfect obedience to his father, leaves his kingdom in heaven and all the privileges and comforts thereof to come into this earth to do what? To offer us grace, to offer us mercy, to say, guys, there's a debt, okay? But here's the thing. There's relief from that debt. Eternally so. Through faith in me, Jesus gets on a boat with his disciples, He goes out onto the sea, falls asleep in the stern. The fact pattern is perfect. The language parallels. There's a great wind. It causes a great storm. The disciples, professional seamen, they're fishermen. Freak out. They wake Jesus up. They say almost exactly the same thing the captain says to Jonah. They're like, do you not care that we're perishing? You know, and Jesus says, okay, all right. We, we, we know the fact pattern, guys. We recognize the similarities here. Throw me over the side and you'll all be saved. No, because that's where the similarity breaks. And in that, Jesus is going, I'm not just a picture of Jonah. I am Jonah's God. I speak to the wind and the waves and they listen to me. Hush, be still, and they are. And then later, what does he do? Yeah, okay. Later, he takes upon himself the sin of all the Ninevites who come to him and say, I got a debt I can't pay. I'm claiming your payment for me. And I'm claiming you for me, and I'm giving me to you. Finally, fully, this is it. He took that upon himself on the cross. He died where he suffered, and then he was put into a grave for three days and three nights, and just like Jonah, came out of the fish. And it was a great surprise, don't you think? So also here. And then he commissioned his disciples to go into the whole world. The whole world is Jesus Nineveh. He sent us out into the whole world. And what we need to ask ourselves is, all right, we've been sent out into the whole world. What's holding me back from the world? What's keeping me out of the game? What is it that stands between me and my neighbor or anybody? Because whatever it is, it's a plant. And every step toward it is a step away from God, which means it's a step down no matter what else I get to hang on to. So I close with this. What stands between you and your ability to take the gospel to the people in your family and in your workplace and, you know, just the folks you run into, they're in your world. You work out with them at the gym, whatever. What is it? And what is it that stands between you and your ability to take the gospel to maybe a person or maybe a whole group of people that You really don't want to do that. They are your Ninevites. Because the Lord is going, hey, let me tell you the prayer I want from you, okay? So here it is. It looks like this, Lord. Um, I repent. I'm going to turn from that, and, and I'm going to follow you in this. I, I may not want to, but I want you to make me want to, or at least make me want to want to. You know, like make me want, make me a weeper over souls. Make me someone who says, look, I'm going to deal with my feebleness and entrust it to you. And in it, I'm going to go forward in faith and I'm going to get to work. Let's pray about that. Lord, we praise you that you are good. All of these things that Jonah said about you, the whole of them and infinitely more are true. You're gracious and merciful. Lord, you are kind, you relent, you you turn from disaster. Your heart and desire is repentance and faith and life and joy. Fill us with that kind of faith and life. And Lord, deal with whatever it is that we've got to turn from, the plants in our lives that are really just weeds that keep us from sharing you with anyone or for that matter, everyone. Do this for your glory and for our joy, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name.